Welcome to the Yoko Podcast, brought to you by the Youngin Gyeonggi-do chapter of Korea Tessel. My name is Greg Lewis. I'd like to open this second installment of my interview with Dr. Maria Teresa Martinez-Garcia with a shameless plug for Cortisol. I freely admit that I do a lot of over-planning and over-preparing for whatever my students might throw up at me. The demands of each class, they change based on the dynamics of the group, and each class changes from day to day, so I like to be prepared. So how do I do that? Like, how am I able to prepare for these you know, multiple contingencies? It's in large part, it's it's simply from years of experience. But the years of experience comes from years of talking with colleagues, frankly, discussing what works and what doesn't work and why, and listening to their ideas and feedback, and then lobbing my own ideas back out to them to see what resonates. And part and parcel of those invaluable conversations is attending Cotisol conferences, national conferences and international conferences and chapter meetings, and, and even, even better over the last few years, volunteering to host Zoom presentations. Like as a Zoom host, I get to choose which talk I want to host, and I have the opportunity before every presentation for a little private one-to-one conversation with some really amazing people. Like, so, so let's say, for example, that I have an issue with assessing pronunciation, and I see that some professor in another part of the world is presenting on precisely that. I just jump online. I select to host at their presentation date and time. And between now and the conference date, I'm able to email them, like communicate back and forth with that professor, just to like to confirm their date and time and to offer my assistance you know, for, with anything they might need for their, for their presentation uh, between now and, and that conference date. And when it's time for the presentation, I'm already familiar with them and they're already familiar with me. And it's really very easy to strike up a brief conversation as we wait for you know, attendees to enter the, the room. It's almost the same as doing the Yoko podcast. That's this Youngin chapter Cotisol podcast that you're listening to now. But neither of these opportunities would exist if Cotisol and the people, the many people who volunteer to make it run like a well-oiled machine, if, if they didn't exist, neither would these opportunities. I pay 50,000 won per year, which might sound like a lot to be a member of, of Cotisol. But what do I get? I, I, I get to rub elbows with people who are way smarter than me. I, I get to network with, with local teachers from other universities that I would never meet otherwise. Uh, I find work through some of those connections. I have found work through some of those connections, so it's profitable. Um, Cotisol provides a platform for, for this podcast that I do. Uh, I've met people from other teaching organizations in other countries. And in fact, I'm presenting at one of those conferences uh, next year. And for years, I simply attended conferences, maybe one a year. But, you know, ever since I joined as an active member, boom, it's just, <laughs> I'm just so grateful. And I just wanted to share that with everybody. And it's because of organizations like Cotisol and being an active participant that it's allowed me to be much more than I could have achieved on my own. 
And so I'd just like to say thank you to all the teachers I've met over the years uh, who've, who've been open to discussing you know, their successful teaching strategies and to the Cotisol organization. And as a nice little segue, I would like to say thank you to our guest, Maria Teresa Martinez-Garcia. Welcome back. My pleasure. And my co-host, Andre Jacobs. Did you know? You're no. Gonna co yeah, you're a co-host, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I was just done listening that. in. <laughs> no, no, we, we've given you a role. In our first interview, you did talk about um, uh, the, like the benefits of learning two, two languages. You were talking about bilingualism. Um, mm -hmm. That was your focus. Um, and that was sort of the, yeah, I, think, I, th I believe you used the word baseline uh, mm -hmm. of, of what you were talking about. But then you did talk about being uh, multilingual and, uh, and that that actually helped you to learn languages. Mm -hmm. And if you wouldn't mind just touching on two things. One is explaining, I guess, to people how that uh, uh, helps you to learn another language, being multilingual. And also, is there a downside to that? Is there... Do they get in the way of each other? Is there ever a problem with learning a language when you have too many? Answering the first question, it's beneficial because you get to understand better how languages work. What it means is that once you're monolingual, what it happens is that you get a set of rules in your brain. And every time you try to learn a new language, you are trying to apply those rules to the new language. And some of the times it works, some of the times it doesn't work because languages do use different sets of rules. So once you get to learn a second language, the number of rules you have in your brain multiply. Maybe double, maybe just you are just adding a couple of more new rules. But by the time you're trying to learn the third language, the number of rules you have in your brain have increased which makes it easier for you to make associations with between the rules you already have in your brain and the new rules you are trying to apply when learning a second language. Uh, let me give you one example. I'm teaching Spanish at a university where all my students must have at least a high intermediate level of English. Uh, but most of them are Korean. So what it happens is that Korean doesn't have an article, like something like the or a an, but they had to learn this rule in English. And the rules for the use of the articles in Spanish and English are not identical, but quite similar. So when my students are learning how to use the articles in Spanish, most of the time they are saying, oh, but this is like English. So instead of having to apply the rule of their native language, they can apply the rule of the language they learn later on to be able to help them make these associations and hopefully learn faster. It is easier to realize and understand that there are other rules over there. And this is just an example with rules, but also happens, for example, in terms of pronunciation. As you get used to new sounds, uh, perceiving and getting to pronounce new sounds in a third, fourth language becomes easier. 
uh, I want to say becomes easier. It doesn't mean that it's easy at all. It's just that right. your brain is starting to get used to, oh, there are other sounds that I was not using in my native language, but actually I had to learn or I had to try to learn at least in my second language. Then when I'm listening to this third, fourth language, I can make association. Oh, this sounds like Spanish S and this sounds like English Z. So maybe I can be making these associations. This sounds like Spanish. This sounds like English so that I can learn the new language. Uh, for example, that's, that's my case for me uh, when it comes to learning Korean. You know that Korean has these consonants that are like triple, mm. like the pa, 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 something mm, right. like that. I'm not pronouncing them right. But for me, those two of them are like Spanish. And the third one sounds like English. So when I'm listening, it's like, oh, this sounds like English pa, while this sounds like Spanish ba or pa. Then I, I make those associations. Not that I'm good at it, but at least for me, it's easy to, oh, this is the English one, this is the Spanish or the others. So it helps in that sense. So, so that's uh, your your the the one rule you're sort of building the rules and and sort of merging them and finding a, a commonality there. Mm -hmm. Is there a point where there, I'm just thinking about in my own head that is there come a point when there there there's just too many rules? Like I I see the association what you're talking about. The thing is that as far as we know in linguistics, there is just a set of rules. Let's say that all the languages of the world, in terms of grammar, they have 100 rules. There are more than that, but just to give an mm. example. Mm -hmm. uh, Spanish does have 10 of them. When it comes to learning English, eight of them are shared, but two are new. So you have 12. Uh, so you add a third language, let's say Korean. We are now adding five more. So you are at 17. It's not that there are unlimited set of rules or combinations of rules. There is a limited set, uh, which makes it easier because there is a point in which uh, once you are learning, uh, you are going to have all the rules there. So you will not need to identify them. What it could happen is that it slows you down in the sense that you are trying to make so many associations that... When you are trying to speak the language, you are like, wait, was this like from English, from Korean, from Spanish, from which language was I making the, the association? So it could slow you down because you are trying to make many uh, combinations in, in, in your brain. Sure. Uh, but I don't think it will be any other problem other than that. Maybe slowing you down in the learning process. It's, it's sort of a fascinating subset, I guess, of of learning a language. It, I mean, just learning a language, generally speaking, they're just learning the rules of that language and they're not thinking about anything else. Of course, this is all unconscious. I, I'm I'm guessing what you're what you're talking about. But uh, I, I just thought, wow, once we get into more and more languages and more and more rules, but you, you make it very clear they they are there. There's the commonality, and we're only adding one or two rules maybe per language, but I think you speak eight languages. Is that right? Fifteen, uh, twenty-four. No, no, no. <laughs> fluently, fluently, I speak four, and yes. then I can go by with another four. 
Yeah, to me, it's just confusing you saying that. <laughs> so I don't have a language learning brain. Is there a language learning brain? There is. It's called language aptitude. There are people that are just good at learning languages, and I'm actually not one of them. <laughs> well, you seem to be doing very well. Doing my best. Also back at that uh, young in presentation, when we did that first interview, uh, you did talk to Andre about... Um, or, I can't remember if you started or mentioned music or Andre asked about music, but he was looking for that, the role of music, I think in stress and uh, obviously stress and, and intonation, I think. But I, th I think, uh, Andre, you were asking about pronunciation and, and grammar, the role of music in that. Before we go on to that, can I roll it back a little bit? I'm, sure. I'm curious how, how pronunciation relates to language learning. I mean, is there a relationship between how good you are at pronunciation and how easy it is to learn a language or is there no relationship between those two? There is no relationship. Um, you might be familiar with the critical period, which is this theory that after a certain mm. age, it's going to be impossible to learn a native language as a native speaker. Mm. Uh, recently has been shown that that's not true, mm -hmm. uh, but in pronunciation. In pronunciation, there is something else going on that makes some people be really good at pronouncing a foreign language, while others, it doesn't matter if their grammar is perfect, their vocabulary is really advanced, mm. their pronunciation is always off. They sound like mm. the native language. So in that sense, uh, there is not so much of a relationship between language learning and pronunciation, because there seems to be something else going on with pronunciation. Mm. There is something that grammar people can continue improving. Um, their sentences can become more and more complex, more elaborated, more native-like, to say it like mm. that. Uh, while pronunciation, for some people, it's really hard. Like, for example, in my case, I have lived in the US for eight years. I work in an American university, so my life is 90% in English, yet mm. I have a really strong Spanish accent when I uh, speak uh, English. Mm. And I really have tried to, to change that. Not because I think it's something bad, but to kind of, I'm like improving. Why mm. can I not also improve this and sound more native-like? Mm. In my case, impossible, and I've tried many things. And I know there is this um, line of research identifying that the brain of a native speaker and the brain of a learner is really similar when the learner has achieved a really uh, high uh, proficiency level in the second language, when mm. it comes to grammar, when it comes to vocabulary. Mm. But when it comes to uh, perceiving sounds and pronouncing mm. sounds, not everybody is able to identify sounds that do not belong to the native language. And so far, the research is trying to get into why. What is there? Is there any specific like pronunciation aptitude or I don't even know how to call it, but is there anything specific to pronunciation that makes it harder uh, compared to maybe grammar and or vocabulary? Mm -hmm. 
And then also you in, in, in your bio, you talk about speech perception, L2 speech perception. Is mm -hmm. that specifically pronunciation or does, is that other, are there other parts to that as well? It is related to, to learning pronunciation, but not only that, because sometimes what I do is do people that have no knowledge of the language perceive sounds that do not belong to, to their native language. And what I normally study is, let me get, for example, a Korean uh, naive when it comes to Spanish and see whether they can perceive this specific uh, sound contrast that only exists in mm. Spanish. And let's see, like, after one semester, after two semesters, after I don't know how many semesters of Spanish, and mm. see whether there is any change, whether there is a possibility of learning to distinguish between these sound contrasts. So yes, uh, it comes to uh, it relates to pronunciation, but not only. It could be. Mm. Is is that the focus of your research? The, Mostly, yes. That aspect. Yes. Oh, so this it's almost like it's almost more cognitive than than linguistic. Yes, in my case, my my field of research is psycholinguistics and neurolinguistics. So it's looking into like what's going on, trying to get do what's going on at the cognitive level when it comes to learning process, the language processing, or even learning a second language. Okay. So if I, just about that pronunciation and being able to hear the sounds, would, I'm, I'm guessing from a, from a teaching perspective, perspective, from an applied linguistics perspective, that the exposure to sound, particularly in a place like Korea, where they maybe don't hear English very much, that of course that's going to interfere in there with their ability to produce those sounds. Um, is is there? I, I'm just, I'm guessing that, that this is true. That if you increase the amount of exposure to uh, audio exposure to to the language, that that will help them discover those sounds. Yes. Okay. And another thing that uh, we linguists propose is presenting variability. What do you mean Different, by variability? Variability means uh, if they only listen to one person speech, that doesn't mean they are going to be able to perceive the same sounds when someone else produces them. Right. So it means uh, variation in terms of dialects, but also variation in terms of if we are learning, I don't know, uh, American English, for example, let's get people from different different parts of America, or let's get even from New York different persons, because not two persons produce the sounds the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, what I also do with my students is I make them listen to learners of Spanish, because they get used to the pronunciation of native speakers at some point, and then when someone comes with an English accent, like speaking Spanish, but with an English accent or with an Italian accent, any other accent, they get lost. Right. It's like uh, they got so used to, let's say, a standard pronunciation that when something is a little bit off this standard, uh, it becomes more and more challenging for them to, to, to perceive the sounds. So th that's what I mean by variability, like trying to present them like different voices. Uh, women and men, uh, different dialects, if possible, mm. uh, as much variability as possible. 
Well, I, I didn't think that even gender would make a difference, but I, I, I can see, sure, why not? It does, oh. it does. So, Andre, you were talking about music, just to take it back to that music. Mm, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I just, I know, I noticed that that Maria d- used to play the flute. She said, used to play the flute. Yes. Uh, I'm sure she still does some somewhere deep inside has that ability. Deep, deep inside, yes. <laughs> the the role of music in in uh, in pronunciation and grammar. Uh, the role of music. I, I was looking more into detail after our debate at the Youngin uh, talk. There seems to be a clear relationship between music aptitude, like having. I don't want to say like being better at music, but having this ability that maybe someone else doesn't have and uh, pronunciation. Pronunciation uh, mostly in a second language. When it comes to things like rhythm or stress or tones in Chinese, those that are better at identifying musical melodies, they are much, much better at uh, identifying like different tones or different like, is this a question? Is this a statement? They are much better at this. But not only that, uh, the effect goes to all uh, pronunciation issues, like even distinguishing certain sounds, like to the sound level, not just the melody, there is also this relationship. Uh, What it has been found though, is that sometimes it depends on your native language. So if your native language is more melodic, you you have kind of this uh, relationship between my melodic language, my music aptitude, perceiving other melodies, other languages is easier for me. That doesn't mean it doesn't work for other languages, just there is this benefit you are kind of adding. If my music is more melodic than other, uh, if my language is more melodic than other languages, I have more of a chance to be able to identify sounds in the second language. When it comes to grammar or even vocabulary learning, the findings are not so clear. And what the articles I was looking at were uh, saying is that probably there is something else. There is music, aptitude and something else because some of them found a relationship some of them did not find the relationship between um, the two variables so what they were proposing is that music and pronunciation most likely go hand by hand when it comes to music and grammar or most music and learning vocabulary yes they go hand by hand but there must be something else uh, because the the relationship is not so evident between these two variables. I know that I hear, I can remember musical things much better, you know, like a jingle. Uh, that's just remembering, and, and I'm not learning a language. It's just that they, those things stick. I can remember a toothpaste advertisement from when I was a little kid. You know, it's just, they stick in your head. Um, and I'm guessing that music has that, I don't know, stickiness to it. And, and you're saying perhaps that's partly because of the, the, the musicality of my first language. It could be. Right. It could be. And also it's the same. If you think about it, 
uh, for me, it's much easier to remember like melodies and these type of songs in Spanish than in any of the other languages I can speak. Oh, is that right? In my case, uh, when it comes to, for example, English songs or English advertisements I used to watch while I was in the U.S., I might be able to, oh, this reminds me of something, but not so much. But when it comes to like something I used to watch as a kid in Spanish or Catalan, I hear it and it's like, oh, is this show that I used to watch when I was with my brothers? I can make all these connections, but not so much when it comes to another language. Is that repetition, though? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because you listen to them for longer period of time. Also contextuality. I mean, you have a much broader context. That's right. And immediate, immediate experiential context to draw from. Because I, I have the same thing in, in, in Korea, actually. And it's one of the one of the reasons I like being here, <laughs> because I don't have those constant connections. Because when I go back to South Africa, something just goes like, bam, like it's like fireworks, you know. And it's very intrusive, actually, especially when it comes to advertising. Um, I don't enjoy that effect. But in Korea, I don't have that because I don't have those connections. So it's much, much more peaceful being, being in, in Korea. That sense. In that sense. Yeah, makes sense. I, I have another question. But, um, sorry, Greg. Um, no, no. You, you said that um, the information in speech signals can constrain lexical, ac lexical access. What, is that, what does that mean? It sounds interesting, but I don't know what it means. I was curious about that. It means that if you cannot perceive the, the sounds correctly, you might not be understanding the right word. I think I gave this example uh, during the talk, but in Spanish we have the words canto, canto, with the, the difference where the, the stress falls within the, the word. If someone is not able to hear the difference between the syllables, they are going mis to misunderstand uh, the sentence. That's what it means. Because what they do is they want to understand X, but because they don't perceive the difference, they are understanding why. Mm -hmm. Then in most of the cases, we have other contextual information, right? Because words appear within a sentence. So there are not going to be major misunderstandings. We have all that external information that is going to tell us, hey, you were interpreting X, but X doesn't make sense within this sentence. But there are some occasions in which uh, there, there could be misunderstandings because two words really resemble. The context does not give you enough information. So unless you are able to correctly identify uh, those sounds, you might be actually getting the wrong information. Uh, I see what you mean. Lift the hill, is it, but us, our, our Korean students will say the e as an e, lift your heel. You know, I mean lift your heel, but they're trying to lift the mountain. Big problem. That's exactly the problem. And they might be understanding you that you are saying, like, let's leave the mountain instead of the... Which, which is going to adversely affect my, uh, my student evaluations. when He's asking us to do impossible things. <laughs> <laughs> Always. You, you're, you're teaching at, at, sorry, is it Utah University right now, no. right? Uh, yes. In, in Chun, right. Uh, I was curious about whether you, you your approach to teaching, how much you might use sort of task-based uh, teaching in your, in your classroom. 
I would love to do it even more than what I do. I would like to do it mostly like every day uh, using this methodology, but it's not doable because right now I'm the only Spanish teacher. So all the Spanish they get, everything they learn is through me and I don't have enough time to go through like grammar, vocabulary, pronunciation issues and trying to get them to actually use the language in real context. What I try to do those, though is implement this technology, this methodology throughout the semester. So I don't normally have midterm or final exams. What I do is a project in which I make them uh, use what we are learning to, in the classroom in real uh, situations and for something that is meaningful. I mentioned this, I think, at the talk, but uh, one of my finals for the second semester Spanish, it's actually to record a video in which they are advertising the university to Spanish-speaking uh, potential students. So they have to go and they go showing like, this is the library, and the library is in front of our main building, blah, blah. So they, they go and they are using what we learn into the classroom, but in a more applied and useful, mm -hmm. meaningful way for them. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's, that's exactly the kind of projects uh, that, uh, that I would... The, I was just wondering about podcasting as you're speaking there, because I'm, I'm just sort of interested in that audio aspect, but just the podcast as a project for them to uh, do, I don't know, uh, uh, an interview like this. I, I use it like my, my, my project for the, fi the, the final project for my first semester is something like a podcast in which they do interview a native speaker. Oh, cool. Of course, their knowledge is still really basic. So the interview is really, really basic, but uh, they use it and they love it. I always tell them, like, it doesn't need to be really fancy. You don't need to use any of this equipment. Like, just doing a recording with your phone is right. more than enough. But they, they really enjoy it. They really enjoy it's, it. it's pushing them to to try to to do their, their best? Or, or are they... Because I, I find often they'll... If they can, they will try and write it down and, and read it. <laughs> yes. But what it happens with this type of project is the interviewee can ask anything back or can say anything that they were not planning. That's why I do it, actually. Because I, I don't know how it's for you, but in my case, they are so good at memorizing what they have to yes. do at the presentation or something. Yeah, yeah. So you listen to them and it's like, oh my God, your Spanish is perfect. And then you ask, like, <laughs> how are you? And they are completely lost. Like, what are right. you talking about? I didn't memorize that. Right. So I like that project, actually, because normally the response from the interviewee, I always ask them, it has to be a native speaker. The person they interview is going to use a word I don't use in class or is going to use a different expression than what we are using. So they have to use the language, really use the language, even though they might have memorized most of it. Right. So the interviewer is not, so maybe there's a group of two or three students and the interviewer is not part of that group beforehand. Exactly. It has to be someone that is native speaker of Spanish. So they have to interview someone outside. Ah, I see. They are interviewing somebody outside. Someone who's else. A native. Oh, yes. I got it. Yes, 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 yes. That's why uh, most of it, they probably memorize it, right? 
but because it's someone that is not in my classroom, they don't know what I use in the classroom. They are native speakers. They are going to be using real Spanish with them. So they have to, I, I'm sorry, uh, can you repeat or follow up right. questions? So. Sure. Oh, that's great. I, I, I've been interviewed many times in, in Seoul. You get a, a, accosted by uh, English students wanting to I speak imagine. to a, an English uh, professor or somebody who looks like they speak English. It's, I imagine, it's... I imagine. <laughs> Maria, you're involved in so many different um, research projects. Firstly, how do you manage that? I mean, it seems insane just looking at all the stuff you're doing. Um, how do you manage that? And, and what are you working on currently? I mean, in Korea. Um, how I manage it? I manage it. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Some weeks is like, oh, I don't have anything to do. What's happening? Like, I probably am forgetting something. <laughs> Some weeks are like, when can I go back to sleep, please? Uh, but my thing is that I'm not a Spanish teacher. I'm a linguist. So I like teaching Spanish. I'm happy with that. But where I get really happy is when I'm doing my research and getting back to my linguistics kind of background. That's why uh, my university doesn't even require me to do any research. If I want, perfect. If I don't want, no problem. But I want to do it because it's it's letting me continue being uh, involved in what I really like and why I went into academia in the first place. So for me, it's just, okay, let's have some fun outside of the classroom, right? <laughs> um, and right now I have a couple of projects going on. Uh, I have three for which I'm collecting data and um, and currently like really working hard of them on them. One is in collaboration with some um, colleagues back in Switzerland uh, because French and Korean do not have stress that we were describing. But in reality, French and Spanish are much more closer, much more similar than if you compare Korean and uh, Spanish. So we are trying to determine, okay, the two languages, French and Korean, do not have this property, but there is this similarity between French and Spanish. So will French learners be better than Korean learners because of this similarity? Or because the two languages do not have that property, they will be equally bad, let's say, at, at perceiving and pronouncing the, these sounds in, in Spanish. The second one, I'm doing it in collaboration with actually my brother back in the US. And we are trying to get at understanding what is the economic value uh, of knowing Spanish in different parts of the world. So, for example, we started with the U.S. and if you speak Spanish in the U.S., you are more likely to get a job. And also your salary is on average $3,000 higher if you speak Spanish than someone who is only purely monolingual uh, of English. So we are trying to expand that and see what happens in all the parts of the world. Actually, we are trying to get like data oh, from all over the world. Like it's been Korea. a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a challenge, a challenge. And the third one is in collaboration from someone from actually Utah here in my campus. And um, he is the professor in the urban ecology department. 
And what he has found out is that uh, different languages use words to talk about uh, climate change uh, in different ways. So, for example, a tornado in the U.S. is not exactly a tornado in Korea. But still, in Korea, they are using the English word because there is not a Korean word to describe that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So the closest they have is the word tornado. But whatever happens in the U.S., like destruction, like so much damage, is not exactly what happens in Korea. So using that terminology is actually giving false expectations to people. So we are trying to compare different languages. And when it comes to climate change, how do different languages refer to and what do they really mean with the, the terminology that they are using? So we are trying to combine our two knowledges to, to, to work together. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So it's not a universal language for weather, I guess. Exactly. That's what uh, he was telling me. Like, maybe if we really want to understand what climate change is, we might want to have like a more cohesive vocabulary mm -hmm. so that everybody really understands. Because if you say in Korea, oh, there is a tornado, it's going to be like, bah, like a little bit of wind, nothing right. else. Yeah. But if you say that in, I don't know, Kansas or the Midwest, it's going to be, oh my God, let's look for shelter. So right. the expectations and what we understand are not exactly the same. And maybe we might want to be more cohesive so that everybody understands what's going on. And now a word from our sponsor. And back to the show. Only the only the three projects right now going at the same time. Only the only three. only the three projects. <laughs> that that's interesting. And then, I mean, your your brother, what what field is he in? Economics. So, because yes. one of the things that you mentioned was the effectiveness. Uh, sorry, the language similarity and trade. Like one of the things you mentioned in your part. So, like the relationship between language similarity and trade. What did you find? Uh, the once we control for um, the gross income of the countries, once we control for distance between the two countries, the more similar two languages are, the more likely the two countries are going to be partnering with each other. We are arguing that maybe it's not just language, but because the similarity, there might also be cultural similarities. So... Uh. We cannot claim like, oh, because the two languages are similar, there is this. We are saying, okay, the two languages are similar, which also involves culture, uh, customs, maybe the type of food we eat is more similar, right? Mm -hmm. Then all those things make it more likely that two countries are going to be uh, in partnership yeah. than when the language is completely different. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because a couple of years ago I saw a study um, because the Korean companies were, were moving internationally. Um, and I saw a study which said like half of the business dealings just fell flat, like more than half because of cultural and communication problems, but not specifically the language, just a completely different business culture. So they couldn't talk to each other. And um, these days, it's, it seems to be much better. But well, I don't know if there's a, more of a cultural awareness in Korea or if Korean culture is more accessible internationally these days 
but yeah that that's a fascinating area what i know from working in a all foreign language university before coming to utah hanguk university of foreign studies is that uh if my students wanted to get a job they had to prove that they had been living uh in a spanish-speaking country not only that they had this level like certified mm -hmm. of spanish oh, of course that helped a lot right? right but if they could prove like uh i have this certification i have a high intermediate level of spanish and I have lived in this specific country, they were more likely uh, to, to get a job. Mm. Yeah. And when I asked, wow. like, why? And they told me, like, because the employees think that if we have lived there, we can get used to living in a foreign language mm. and communicating with others. So maybe we are going to be better suited for the job than someone that can only speak the language but has no experience, real mm. experience, living and experiencing the life or in, in this specific country yeah. better able to assimilate culturally. Yeah, exactly. exactly and it's it's interesting how the korean companies are are using that ability because uh, some I, I teach business english as well so some of my students a lot of my students go abroad and then some companies have this thing where they send company employees to a country for a year not okay. to work there just to learn the culture and get used to the way people live so they've yeah. they figured out that that's how that's what yeah. you need so yeah. it's pretty cool yeah it's kind of cool you show your certificate saying you're at this level and your passport showing that you have been there between these dates so, exactly that's uh, and you survived you were there and you yes. survived <laughs> <laughs> yeah to tell about it that is great yeah oh, I, I have another another oh sorry greg no, I was just saying it's very interesting that, that that sort of coming around, I guess it's a part of being m more multicultural and, and the world is becoming. Yeah. yeah. And then something else I noticed is you were talking about gamification. Yes. Now, I I don't like gamification. I'm going to tell you straight because I, I think it, it, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. But I'm curious about your your perspective. I only use it for review. I don't think using it for learning is that useful. But I think it's a really nice way for us to review because it gets out the stress of, oh my God, this is, and review, not for evaluation. Just, okay, we saw like how to conjugate the verbs in Spanish. Let's play with Kahoot a little bit. Mm. That way I have immediate feedback of who got it, who didn't get it. For that, I use it. And I think for certain things can be really useful, but I don't think it works for teaching. Yeah, oh, I agree. I second that. But I mean, that seems to be a buzzword now and it really annoys me because, because I think it doesn't work and it can, the students are smart. They know this is not a game. <laughs> this is studying. So it's it's a counter it's counterproductive, I think. Yeah, I also think it has the benefits. Like, okay, we have been learning so much. We have like ten minutes now at the end of class. Mm. Let's relax and, and review, right? But I don't I don't think it's the answer. Like, uh, as a tool to combine, yes, but as a tool by itself, no. But as a methodology, yeah, by itself. that I would totally agree with that. That it's a just another tool, and you can't just rely on it. Exactly. That's yeah. Wow. So, so what is the the golden arrow? I mean, silver is bullet. That, that, 
a silver bullet, the golden arrow. You know, what, what, what is the thing that, that, that you would think is the essence of, of language teaching that really makes a difference? Because, I mean, I, I've been looking for it. I've been teaching for 20 years. <laughs> so. It's a really difficult question. I'm still looking for it. And I think the only thing we can do is try to adapt. Mm. Uh, my point of view is always to present the same thing in as many different ways as I can. Like uh, with examples, with pictures, with plainly explaining the grammar. Because someone is going to get like the explanation of the grammar. Someone is, got, is going to get it by... Um, looking at examples oh so mm. this is what's happening and the more variability in this sense that we can use to present the materials to students the more likely we are going to get to many more of them to be able to reach many more of them but i don't think there is there is an answer because there is also so much we can do like it would be awesome to get like verb conjugation and spend like a month with verb conjugation so that we can look at it through many different ways, but it's not doable. Otherwise, we wouldn't move, we wouldn't advance. So I, I don't think there is a solution other than doing mm. our best. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, Just continue doing your best. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that, that, I mean, that's one of the reasons I like, I, I like the idea of project-based learning because that's what projects does it gives you a, a an, an external focus and while you're doing that a lot of things are happening here which is solidifying a small maybe a small um skill or piece of a skill but at least is solid then you know you can you can really work with it but but deciding what that is i mean seems to be hit and miss <laughs> some people take this and some people take that so it's yeah. really hard to to decide or figure out what exactly it's it's working for i noticed teresa that uh, you were uh looked at all of your hobbies and things that you like to do and i i noticed that you're into photography like like analog mm -hmm. photography and i, I did look at your photos and uh, good really I, I like the i particularly like the black and white uh, uh photos you took of some korean sites um do you bring those interests into your teaching, whether it's photography or playing the flute or, or, or swimming or? I try to, but I don't. So for example, uh, I like connecting with the students, trying to connect with the students. So I always ask them like, how was your weekend? What did you do? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, also, to get them to use Spanish in the classroom more, more than anything in a more relaxed way at the beginning of the class. Uh, what I normally do is I know most of them do have Instagram, so they like and they are always posting and checking and doing. So sometimes I do show them and it's like, for example, we are talking about, uh, I don't know, like food or something. So I pull out my Instagram and I show like, look what I ate. And they start asking me questions like, wasn't it too spicy for you? Or um, what did you think about this? So getting that a little bit of interaction between what I do outside of the classroom yeah. and what we are doing in the classroom. But sometimes it's difficult. Yeah, I, that's exactly what, what I, was, I was thinking of. Yeah, I know it's, it's your sort of, you have to open yourself up 
I, I guess. But they mm-hmm. they do seem to really want to know about this strange creature that's standing at the front of their class speaking a funny language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they they're, they're curious, sure. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Is there anything that uh, I, I that that Andre or I have not asked you that maybe we should have, or that you would like to talk about, you know, be, while you have this forum? No, not really. You ask a lot of questions. Too many. A lot questions. of really good questions. A lot of really good questions. <laughs> uh, I have one more question. I mean, sorry. <laughs> as a, as a plebeian, um, how how would somebody like me um, be able to get involved in research projects and things like that? Because I do, uh, I'm interested in a lot of things. And, and since I'm teaching, I mean, that's kind of the focus of my interest. And I would like to be involved in, in learning more about what I do or what I think I do anyway. So, I mean, how do people like me get involved in, in projects uh, like, like the ones you're running? I mean, where do I go and uh, where do um, I not? Personally, that's the reason why I joined Cotesso. Because technically, uh, I'm a Spanish teacher. Uh, so what are you doing in, in the Korean Association of Teachers of English? And the reason is, I, I went to the Spanish version of it, but the work they do has nothing to do with the work I do or what I'm interested in, because they mm-hmm. mostly focus on literature. And I honestly know zero about literature other than reading books, right? Uh, so for me, there is nice, I can meet friends, but when I heard about Cotesol and I joined one of the conference, there was when I started to get like, uh, ideas, actually, literally ideas. I was going to different talks. I was going to different presentations and I was getting ideas. And then the, the opportunity that brings is that you can talk with those persons one-on-one, right? And you can say, oh, you presented about X topic, and I always wonder what would happen if we do it this other way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the beginning point, getting out there, getting to know what people are doing and communicating with them. Like most of the researchers are interested in also in working with other persons, but it's difficult to make connections. And I think in Korea, I don't know why it's particularly difficult. Maybe, I, I don't know why, but it's particularly difficult as compared to how it was uh, when I was back in the US. There, there were always talks, there were always conferences you could go, and it was easier to be in touch with other researchers. Here is a little bit harder. Uh, so I think all of us are trying to look for collaborations, for ways to work with each other, to collaborate, to explore new ideas. So I I, I think attending uh, some of the conferences, some of the talks that Cotesol in this case presents is a really good way to start. And also know like I'm interested in this, so I'm going to go to the talks that focus on this specific Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. so that you can link your interest with or the interest of others working on similar things. Okay, more legwork. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Always. (laughs) And an excellent plug for Cotesson. So thank you very much, uh, Maria, for for your time and for being open to asking all of these, uh, these silly questions that we've been asking you. My pleasure. It was my pleasure. 
The Yoko Podcast is 100% organic and passionately presented courtesy of the Youngin Gyeonggi-do chapter of Kotisol. This podcast and all chapter events, workshops, presentations, and meetings are made possible only with the active participation of voting members like you. Please consider becoming a part of an important nonprofit organization by taking on an active role in your local Kotisol chapter. My name is Greg Lewis, and you have been listening to the Yoko Podcast. Join us, won't you?